what a wonderful time of reflection upon uh, the Lord's death and uh, for us, and how it's also a singing songs of praise. I hope it's uh, just the Lord uses that to prepare our hearts for as we continue our worship and here in the Word of God this morning. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel, back to the Gospel of Luke, where we'll be this morning, Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> Luke chapter 9 is where we'll be today. <clears throat> it's been a while since I've uh, had a chance to preach to you uh, from this pulpit. I've, uh, I think it's, uh, it's been a, maybe about a month or so. We, in between, we've had, uh, uh, <clears throat> we've had our retreat speaker, Pastor Allen, preach, and he talked to us about uh, finishing well. Uh, then we, the week after that, we had uh, Pastor David Lee, who came and spoke to us about the importance of, of worshiping, singing, in, uh, uh, singing in, uh, in praise and worship of God. And then uh, uh, last week, we were thankful for uh, Pastor Ray, who uh, preached to us in, uh, uh, from, uh, from Ecclesiastes, so wisdom literature. So I, uh, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but sometimes it's, uh, it can be, it's, it's, it's a learned skill to listen to different people preach. Uh, usually it's like you get used to hearing one person preach all the time. Uh, when someone else preaches, it's like, wow, that sounds different. It's, you always just notice all the differences and stuff like that. And that could be a stumbling block at times. But I hopefully, uh, as a church, we, we, as you're hearing different people come in, and, and as long as they are opening up this book and not, you know, Reader's Digest, Sports Illustrated, or some other book, that they, they are opening up the Word of God, they're explaining the Word of God. And it is an opportunity, uh, as, as you hear, that you say, you know, no matter who opens the book, uh, the Word of God, as long as it's explained, uh, is is what I need, is what's sufficient for me. And so I hope that's just encouraging to you, and I uh, hope you were just encouraged by the, the different people who spoke the Word of God to you this uh, past month until um, now it's my turn. So Luke chapter 9, verse 1 through 11 is where we'll be going to pick up uh, back into this wonderful gospel uh, that <clears throat> the, the Dr. Dr. Luke has written for us or recorded for us. It's a short passage, so I'll read the whole thing uh, together. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to, uh, to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. 
And we pray that as we open up your word today and uh, that we hear it taught and expounded, that your, that your spirit would be our teacher. And you would cause your words to go forth and let they would speak to each and every one here exactly what they need to hear, what they need to be encouraged and challenged by. And Lord, we pray that as a church even, that this message would be a challenge to us corporately to uh, cooperate and work together for the fulfilling of, uh, of our mission as a church of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we uh, pray for those even uh, <clears throat> here today who uh, maybe have come in these doors with uh, their own uh, personal uh, trials, burdens. Uh, they're heavy laden, Lord. And uh, they're, they are maybe even find it difficult to, uh, to focus upon the word of God. But Lord, I pray that for each and every one who needs your comfort, that you would comfort them, that you would cause them to see uh, even um, uh, your, your truths and, and your, your activity, your work in this world uh, that is happening and taking place, and that you would cause to take place even in lives that are, that are wrestling with uh, the trials that, uh, that life brings. And God, we pray that you would glorify yourself this morning through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> In the Great Commission, uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20, I know it's a familiar passage for those of us in this church, if you've been with us for uh, the years. Jesus gives uh, his uh, disciples their marching orders, right? It's uh, to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that Christ commanded. And to this day, if you think about it, uh, since that day some 2,000 years ago, uh, the marching orders have not changed for the church of Jesus Christ. If you are a, a disciple of Christ, if you are a, a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, uh, your mission in this world, uh, particularly as, a, uh, as it is as a part of this, uh, every, uh, this local church, has not changed from even the disciples' marching orders, which they received uh, back in Jesus' day. The mission of the church is still and always to, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to lead others to Christ, and to disciple them and help them to grow and equip them and edify them so that they would be conformed to the image of Christ and that they would then use their gifts and their abilities and the opportunities that life affords to lead others and point others to Jesus Christ as well. Any given local churches may be known for a number of things. And maybe you're here visiting or maybe this is your home church. But you can think of the things that this church might be known for or your home church might be known for. And the main things churches might be known for, beautiful buildings, strong biblical teaching, perhaps friendly, loving people, uh, exuberant singing, a fantastic children's ministry, handsome pastors, uh, and so on. But the most important feature of a church, uh, despite all those wonderful things that may be true of this church or may not, um, ought to be that it is a disciple-making church. Think about it. Is that a Bible, a disciple-making church? Is that something, is that a feature? Is that something that our, the world, the community, maybe you know it, but does, more importantly, does the community around us know that? Do they think of it as a, a disciple-making church, a, a church where you can come to know Jesus Christ and follow him? You know, everything else, everything, every other feature of this church, everything else is, is really secondary to what we do, though as important as all of them may be. 
today's passage that we're going to look at provides some practical lessons for fulfilling the Great Commission. It's a very practical uh, message. And when I say practical, I imply that this, this text gives us some principles, some principles for how to, principles that are true for disciple-making uh, for every church throughout history, for the first and early church, as well as for the, world, the world's churches that, are, uh, that, are, that exist today. Now, as we return to this Gospel of Luke, just a quick review. Luke is written for a, a Gentile audience, not a Jewish audience, but a Gentile audience. Matthew's written for a Jewish audience. This one's written to a Gentile audience. It's written with a very specific purpose of helping those Gentile readers or the readers of this book, gospel to know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. There have been things that they have been taught. They've, literally, the word is they have been catechized in, that they, been, that they learned. And the things they've been taught. But just like children who are catechized, there comes a point where they want to know, are the things that we learn true? Are these really true? I, my, my parents have told me all my life, but are these things true? And Luke writes this gospel so you would know as you read this book, as you hear from somebody else, from Dr. Luke, no less, that these things are true. The things which you have learned, things which you have been taught as a Christian are true, and you can keep on believing in these truths. I hope that this book does that for you, that encourages you in that way. Jesus began his public ministry, as we, uh, in every gospel, in the region of Galilee. And as his popularity grew, his, his ministry began to draw the attention of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, the religious authority. And they were <clears throat> threatened by him because he oftentimes in his teaching undermined the very traditions, the system that they, uh, that they had invested themselves in. And therefore, many of them, when uh, they could realize that Jesus was a threat to their traditions, they sought to destroy him. It was at that time when they began, when the Pharisees, Christ Pharisees became, began to plot against him, that Jesus then did something very significant. He chose 12 of his disciples. This is back in chapter 6. He chose 12 disciples whom he then called apostles. And it was a very, that's a very technical term. Uh, it was a, a, an official representative, someone who would go out on behalf of someone else with their authority to speak their message. And whatever they said, whatever they did, was a representation of the one who sent them. Up to this point, these 12 had been following Jesus around. They had actually not been sent out at all. They were just with him. They were witnesses, really, of all that Jesus said and did. But here in chapter 9, as we arrive at chapter 9, we see that Jesus now sends them out, not permanently, but on a sort of training mission, a trial, a first kind of short-term missions trip, a training mission is what I like to call it. And while this mission is uniquely given to them as apostles, there are elements that are unique to them as apostles, which, by the way, we are not. There are no apostles today uh, in, the, uh, in the world today still. But we can still glean, uh, I, I, I gather, from some practical lessons for our own mission today, our mission to make disciples of Christ, to be representatives of Christ in our world. This passage really splits into three parts, three general scenes. Uh, the commission in verses 1 to 6, uh, the confusion in verses 7 through 9, and the conclusion in verses 10 through 11. But uh, what I want to do is I want to draw out some different, these, some practical lessons. And so in verse 1 to 6, I really broke that into four different parts. So f along with the confusion and conclusion, uh, I'm going to point out six 
practical lessons, six lessons from the Apostles' training mission that guide our mission today. Okay, so just uh, I want to know that you know that there's a, there's a general outline, but I'm going to draw it just kind of practically for us, six lessons for the Apostles' training mission that guide or uh, that really shape and mold even our mission as we fulfill the Great Commission today. So let's take a look at these six things. Uh, oh, well, I don't remember. My keynote game is not on today. All right, six lessons from the Apostles' training mission, the guided mission today. So point number one, number one is found in verse one to two, and that is we look at their commission, their commission. So, and, the, as, and in this commission, we, we read, he called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority over the demons and to heal, heal diseases, and then he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, to perform healing. In this commission of the 12, Jesus makes clear that this mission isn't a new ministry. It is an extension of Jesus' ministry. They are sent out as his representatives. They are, it's not a new ministry. You say, Here, here's your ministry. Here's John's ministry or Peter's ministry or James' ministry. Here's uh, Matthew's ministry, Levi's ministry. Here's Judas' ministry. No, this is my ministry. This is Jesus' ministry, which you are going out to fulfill. They would represent him as they are. And in verse 1, they are represented, they represent in that they are sent, first of all, with his power and authority, right? That he gave them power and authority. And this is very significant in light of the previous context, the preceding chapter. Because what happens in the preceding chapter? Jesus demonstrated his power and authority. Over Over a series of four different miracles, Jesus showed his power and authority over the wind and the waves, over a legion of demons, over an incurable disease, as well as death itself. Jesus now was giving the 12, these, his apostles, the same power over all demons and to heal diseases. Just as Jesus was going about casting out demons and healing the sick, so the disciples themselves would go about doing the same things. And you can imagine, this, as they did these things, this power, the power to do these things was, was, was like a calling card that these men represented Jesus. It was like, oh, well, how, where'd they get this power? Everyone would know, well, that's the same power that that Jesus guy was doing all across Galilee. Now his, his disciples, his apostles are doing the same thing. What's more, in verse 2, not only are they, they sent with his power and authority, but they are sent with, with his mission. With his mission. The word send is the Greek word apostello, from which we get our English word apostle, right? That's why they're ones who are sent out by him. They're sent out as representatives. The 12 are sent out by Jesus Christ to be a witness of the coming of the king. They have seen who Jesus is and what he's done, and they are to testify of that. They are to, it says here that they are sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. There's uh, two aspects to this mission that they have. There's a, a, there's a, a proclamation aspect, and there's a performing aspect. The second act, the performing these miracles, they serve as a confirmation of the authenticity of the proclamation, of the messenger, of their message. In Mark's parallel, both Matthew and Mark, by the way, have parallel accounts of this, Matthew 10, Mark 6. We learned that they were, they were actually sent out in pairs. They weren't sent out one by one, or they weren't sent out as a whole group of 12 or, or two groups of six. They were sent out two by two, six groups all across Galilee. And this was likely because, according to the law of Deuteronomy 19, two witnesses were required to confirm the 
truthfulness of every matter. And so when they have two, they would say they can confirm that these, their, their testimony was acceptable because they both were saying, that, uh, according to the law, were, were uh, confirmed one another. But what was their message? Their message was the kingdom of God. They were to proclaim the kingdom of God. It was concerned the kingdom of God. And this, too, was an extension of Jesus' ministry, wasn't it? Jesus' ministry message was, was the kingdom of God. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God wherever he went. That's why he came. In fact, it was his priority, you remember? Early in his ministry, when the, he, was, he was experiencing that, really, that early great success, the crowds, and particularly around Capernaum, they didn't want him to leave. They said, just stay here. We, we got, you just stay here. We'll bring your people to you. But he said to them what? In Luke 4, 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities, the other cities also. For what? For why? I was sent for this purpose. Jesus has made his purpose really clear. I was sent for the purpose of preaching the kingdom of God to other cities, to all of Galilee. And that's their mission now. They were to proclaim the kingdom of God. They were to represent Jesus throughout Galilee. They were his representatives speaking forth his message about the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, although you and I are not apostles, and I'll, I'll probably say that phrase a couple of times in this text, in this sermon, and we don't have apostolic power and authority like the apostles, we nevertheless, as Christians, are all representatives of Christ, aren't we? We are ambassadors for Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are those who are imitators of Christ, 1 Thessalonians 1.6, and we're followers of Christ. We're called Christians. We're little, little Christ. You and I are representatives of the one true and living God. And therefore, we need to remember that. As we fulfill our great commission, we are representatives of Christ. That's why we're here on earth. That's our part of our mission. Wherever we go, may everything that we do, may everything that we say be a reflection of Jesus Christ in us, that he's our king and our Lord and our master, our savior. There's a second uh, second uh, practical lesson that we draw out from, now from the commission now we draw, and that is in verse 3 to 4. That is, <clears throat> we learn from the apostles' training mission about their provision, their provision. And Jesus said to them, gave them instructions, said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor a bread, nor money. Don't even take two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. Jesus' further instructions to the 12 are a little bit odd. They're odd at the first glance because they're going on a journey. He's sending them out, but they're told not to bring anything extra with them. They are to depend upon God for all their needs. Jesus says, take nothing for your journey, nothing. They were not allowed to bring a bag to hold food. Just think about that next time you go out. Don't bring anything that's like a bag. Don't bring any food. Who doesn't go out of the house and bring some snacks with them? You know, a breakfast bar or, you know, a coffee or something, food, along. Don't bring money, he says. I would feel kind of naked if I walked out without my wallet. I need that, at least my credit card, right? Jesus says, don't bring any money to buy food. Now, between the parallel passes, there is, there is an apparent conflict. And if you kind of study it, kind of do some harmony of the gospel, you realize that Matthew and Luke are, seem to forbid the bringing of a staff. But Mark, however, says you, uh, allows, actually allows for a staff. So just uh, without going into details at all, the best explanation is that Jesus is forbidding here for, for his disciples to take 
an extra staff, that they're not to take anything more than they need. He doesn't say, don't bring, it doesn't, it doesn't say, don't bring any clothes. Don't bring any extra clothes. You got to have clothes, right? So he said, bring a staff because it's not, it was expected to may have staff for, for protection for, uh, as they went about, a walking staff even. But don't bring an extra one. Don't bring an extra, uh, definitely, but make no mistake, he does tell them to bring no bag. Don't bring any food. They were to travel light. These instructions indicate the, the urgency of the mission, but also for the need of the disciples to depend upon God, right? That's what Jesus is teaching them, to depend upon him. He would provide for them. Their mission was a short mission. It probably lasted several weeks, just like our STMs do. And some of you just came back from them. Can you imagine STMs? We sent our STMs like this. But nevertheless, these disciples, these apostles, learned to depend upon God for food, for drink, for shelter. Jesus wanted them to know very clearly that he would always provide their needs as they went about fulfilling his work. God would provide through the hospitality of those who particularly they ministered to. And this was a lesson to teach the disciples to depend upon God as they ministered on his behalf. It would encourage them to see that their labor was worthy of people's support wherever they went, that what they were doing was something that was important, that people would show their appreciation by showing them hospitality, by offering a meal, by giving them a place to stay. In Matthew's parallel, in fact, Jesus explains these prohibitions with the phrase, for the worker is worthy of his support. In this way, he was teaching these apostles that your work, your, as a worker for me, is worthy of the support you receive. It's a worthy work. If it was unworthy, people would not give you any money for it. But it's a worthy work, and that's why people give to support you uh, in, in your living. Now, I want to caution because it would be a mistake for us to read into this a requirement for all our missionaries or even our short-term missions, our missionaries even, to bring nothing with them when they travel. And some people may, would, may, might mistake that because uh, this is a unique situation for the apostles. In fact, we know this to be true because later in Luke chapter 22, verse 36, Jesus will tell his disciples to actually bring money with them and bring a bag with them. So this was a unique instruction for the apostles. And these instructions applied directly to their training mission. And although it does apply to them in this particular way, there is still nevertheless the principle here, a principle of depending upon God for all our needs, right? We do not have to worry about what we are to eat, what we are to wear, what we are to uh, drink, because God loves and cares for us. And as you seek first his kingdom, all these things will be granted unto you. We are, to, we, are to, we are taught in the scripture to pray, give us this day our daily bread, aren't we? Even as our refrigerators are all full. But yet we're taught to pray it nevertheless. Because God wants us to learn to depend upon him. To know, acknowledge that he is the one who provides for all our needs. Whether we are missionaries or whether we are local church members. Missionaries and Christians would be wise to plan for the well for the provisions, but their dependence must always and be upon the Lord. We move to a third lesson in this, uh, in this commission, and that is we learn about rejection. We learn about from the rejection of the, of the, in their ministry, that they are, they are not always going to be received. 
Verse 5 says, And as for those who do not receive you, Jesus continues instructions, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Uh, this, when we read this today, it's a, it's a really odd statement. When was the last time you shook the dust? Well, uh, you know, maybe if you were like visiting some sandy area, you would shake the dust off your feet. But this was a, this was a strange instruction, at least to us today. But as popular as Jesus was, and we'll explain it, and as popular as Jesus was, as wonderful as his message and power, Jesus was not always received, was he? And the same goes for his disciples, right? Some received the apostles' message and ministry, and they opened up their homes and hospitality in, 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 uh, in response. But there's another response that might happen when these disciples went out. That is, they might be rejected. And certainly just as some had rejected Jesus, so they, there would be those also who would reject those whom Jesus sends. These places would then consequently not receive nor listen to the message they had to bring. They would not open up their homes. They would not invite them to meals. They would not provide for their needs. And Jesus gives a very particular instruction in this case. He says, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This is a, something that would be very understandable to a Jewish person in those days. The practice of shaking the dust from, our, from one's souls was a common practice by devout Jews whenever they would leave a Gentile region. So they would enter back into Israel from a Gentile region, and they would take off their sandals, and they would, and they would shake off the, the dust. They did so to show that they were removing the uncleanness of the Gentiles, of the, of the heathens, from them, so that they would not bring any, un, any uncleanness into Israel. So when disciples would do this in front of of the, very, of, the, of the very Jews who would not receive them, those Jews would, would immediately understand what they were saying. For it served as a vivid illustration that their rejection of Jesus' representatives made them equivalent to the heathens, the Gentiles. It was a testimony against them. Specifically, it was a message of judgment upon them. Later on in chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 70, Jesus will make clear, makes clear that the association of wiping the dust from their feet associates it with a coming judgment. Woe to them because they did not listen to those whom Jesus sends. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah, in fact, than those who reject Jesus and his representatives. Like the unbelieving Gentiles, they would be judged when the king comes to establish his kingdom. That's, that's what's shaking as, uh, the, out the dust of feet as a testament against them. And we, uh, brothers and sisters, have the great privilege of bringing this, this same message, a same message of the, that Jesus uh, <clears throat> is the king and, and, he's, and he, how, how one may enter and become a part of his kingdom. We have a message, bring this message of the, of the Christ to the world. And still, just like the apostles did, we have no control over whether people respond to receive or reject the message, whether they believe or not. And there will be some who receive, those whom God calls, and there will be some who reject. Now, I don't think the, the practice is that we should then shake the dust off our feet because no one understands that today. They would just say, what are you doing? That's weird. 
but I believe that an equivalent for us today, even as we, as we in, uh, bring Go Free the message to the world, is that we want to always make sure that we leave people with a clear understanding that rejecting Jesus is the sure path to judgment. Now, that's something that, oh, man, I can just imagine a lot of people would not be my friends after I told them that, right? But that's the truth, right? It's the truth. It's like if a medical doctor says, hey, if you refuse this treatment, you will die. They say, well, I'm not, I don't want to tell them that because they, they, they might offend them. In the same way, it would be, very, it would be mal, <laughs> spiritual malpractice, really, if we didn't tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, how Jesus died on the cross for them, if they believe, they can go to, go to heaven, and then we don't tell them what happens if they don't believe. We should tell them if you don't believe, if you do not receive, if you reject Jesus, there will be a judgment. There is a day of judgment that is reserved when Christ will come again and he will judge every unbeliever, every act of unbelief. With unbelief comes judgment. And so, <clears throat> understand there will be rejection. But let's make sure that our message is consistent and, and that it addresses and, and points people to the truth that there will be a judgment for those who reject Christ. A fourth lesson we can draw is the implementation of their ministry, of their mission. It's in verse 6. And that is here that we find that they simply preach and exemplify the gospel. Departing, in verse 6, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everyone. This verse details basically simply the apostles carrying out the mission in, in response to Jesus' instruction. Sent by Jesus, they, they went throughout the villages of Galilee. Now remember, there's a, there's, as we look at verse 6, it's, it stands in very, uh, in very significant contrast or comparison with what was expressed by Jesus in verse 2. Their mission, according to verse 2, was to do what? Was to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And so in response, the two, these, then go out, these then went out, and what did they do? They were preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. In both cases, the healing, the miraculous healing, and the casting out of demons, all the miraculous signs were a confirmation of, of the first part, the proclamation of a message, the proclamation of the kingdom, or the preaching of the gospel. But you notice the difference, right? You notice the different way that what they did was he, was, he told them to go proclaim the kingdom of God, and they went out, and it's not that they, didn't, they disobeyed Jesus, right? But they in, in, in obedience to proclaim the kingdom of God, they preached the gospel. They pro, pro, proclaimed the good news. The apostles proclaimed the God, kingdom of God by preaching the gospel. You can almost make them, they're almost, uh, almost synonyms in a way. But the, the proclamation of the kingdom of God really is a, is a bigger thing than the, the gospel, the good news. And this is a significant truth. You know, we, we tend to focus on the basics of the gospel, the heart of the gospel we, that we, we understand today. We'll, we'll simply say that, you know, if you need to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you know, something to that effect, and if, because he died on the cross for your sins, so, and if you, uh, so that when you die, you can go to heaven, something along those lines, essentially. Basically, anything about the substitutionary atonement uh, of Christ. But in light of Old Testament prophecy, the gospel, the good news especially for an Israelite or even people in that day, would have been just beyond that. Would have been a bigger picture. The gospel really is the announcement of good news. And it's a good news that's centered upon the coming of a king. 
That's the gospel. The gospel is about a person, and he's a king, and he's coming. By the way, the word Christ means the anointed one, which is a title for the coming king. So when people talk about Jesus is the Christ, they're really saying Jesus is the king. And his announcement is the king who is coming, who's going to establish a future earthly kingdom, all bound up in all the, the covenants in the Old Testament. But the gospel is an announcement of good news about this coming king, but there's an invitation to respond to this king. It's not just, oh, I, oh that's, the king's coming, I believe that, that's going to happen. But it's a response to acknowledge this king, to respond to this king, to become, to acknowledge fealty and loyalty and submission to this king. To say that this king, this Christ, is Lord. To confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the invitation of the gospel. That's what makes the good news. It's to acknowledge that this, that this one whom has come, who is this king, is the one I will submit to, who is the one who I will follow. That's why Jesus, in the next parts, uh, he starts kind of ramping up his message about the kingdom. He starts coming down heavy. He says, you know, if you want to follow me, you want to be part of the kingdom, you must take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. It's a hard and heavy message, but it is a message of the kingdom. Those who wish to be a part of that kingdom must repent of their rebellion against the king. A lot of times we think it all is just, it's repent of our sin. But what is sin? Let's not forget that sin is against someone, against God. Sin is against God who is their king. And we receive the king's provision of salvation by faith. And that provision is through what we think of the gospel is that the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. That this king, this Christ, was crucified for our sins. This is the king that we follow. I hope that kind of fills in and kind of gives you a bigger picture of the good news, the gospel. It's not just simply a, it's not just the basics that we tend to think about. It will help you, especially as you think about when you read all the, the references to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, all throughout the gospels. To understand this big picture that's, that Jesus is talking about and his disciples are talking about. In fact, you can even present the gospel even today that way. That Jesus is king. Will you acknowledge him as king? Will you confess him as Lord? In addition to preaching the gospel, the apostles also do works of healing. Given power and authority by Jesus to do so, they heal as a confirmation of their authority. But that's not all. They're, you know, if, to confirm their, who they were, Jesus could have allowed them to do all sorts of number of miraculous things, right? Maybe he could have just said, hey, you can do, give them the Moses power. Here, throw down a staff. It'll become snakes, you know? Do, you know, the, the, hey, raise a, an axe head off, out of the water, you know? He could have had them do any one of these kind of, you know, also pretty amazing kind of uh, miracles. Uh, call upon, you know, <laughs> some wild animal to devour them those who refuse. But Jesus gives them power to do acts of compassion, acts of healing, acts of restoration, physical restoration and spiritual restoration. It's an act of compassion. 
And I believe that, these, that the power that he gives them is given specifically not just a confirmation of their authority, but it's also given as a picture exemplifying the gospel. It pictures God's love, God's compassion. When God, he, just, he doesn't just say, go out with my message, but go out and show them my message. Not only tell them that I love them and I sent my king, my son to die for them, but then show them that you love them by healing them. And ultimately, that's a picture and points to the ultimate healing from sin that Christ offers to us. I think there's, a, there's, there's an application for us today even. When it comes to the Great Commission, we must be faithful to preach the gospel message, yes. That's first, foremost. Use words, no doubt. But alongside that, we must also look for ways to show love. And some of you are masters at that. Others of us can do a little more work. We can find we need to, as a church, I, I think just as I've been thinking, what can we do as a church in showing our community the love of, that God has for them that's, that's a picture even of the message of, our, of God's love through his son? And may, we find, may we prayerfully find ways as a, as a church, but even as individuals, to show God's love to our community. And in doing so, we exemplify the love that is at the heart of the gospel. Lesson number five. We finally move on to the, the second ask, really the second scene in this, uh, in this uh, story, and that is the confusion that arose in their ministry in verses seven through nine. And then as we find here that the ministry of the apostles really provoked questions among the people. Read in verse seven, nine about Herod the Tetrarch. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening. He was greatly perplexed. He was confused. Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. That's John the Baptist. And by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. But who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. You know, as if Jesus' ministry wasn't already successful enough. Remember, he had already, all of Jerusalem was going, was, was just seeking him out. All of Galilee was seeking him out. He now sends out the 12, two by two, throughout Galilee, Galilee to do the exact same thing. It's like, it's like a, uh, he, but now there are six groups going about Galilee doing that. Proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming a message with authority, and healing the sick, casting out demons, perhaps even raising the dead. People were miraculously getting healed all over Galilee. People were getting saved all over Galilee. Whatever Jesus was doing, it was, it was contagious, it seems. It was spreading. These 12 representatives were now doing the same thing. And inevitably, this, this, this starts reaching, reaching the ears of the king of this region. We call, uh, he's referred to as a king in, in the other parallels, but technically he was called, he's a tetrarch. Because ultimately, even, he, was no, uh, he, was not, he was not completely sovereign because he answered to Rome. Herod the Tetrarch heard of it. He was the ruler of this region. He was, the tet he was also known as Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, the one who basically killed all the, son the, the, uh, the sons in, in Bethlehem. But upon Herod the Great's death, his kingdom was divided into four parts, of which one of those parts was now ruled by Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch. And he ruled this region, which included Galilee, and when he heard of all that was happening in his region, all with regarding Jews' disciples, he was confused. 
He was confused because he was hearing different things. He was hearing different reports, and that's kind of a, you know, that's king. He's not going to go out and figure out what's happening. He's, he's going to send out his people, and they're going to come tell him what, what took place. And people were telling, there was kind of three different kind of threads of who Jesus was. Some thought he was John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Now, that was significant for, John the, for Herod because he himself, and later he mentions it, that he himself had John the Baptist beheaded. John the Baptist, you know, spoke out against his sin and uh, in, in basically inter, uh, intermarrying with, uh, uh, committing adultery and marrying his uh, sister-in-law. Uh, but Herod eventually had John beheaded. Others thought Jesus was Elijah. Uh, he was the Messiah's forerunner, according to the prophecy in Malachi. And still others, there were those who thought that it was, Jesus was just simply one of the prophets, risen again. Jesus was so unique in his teaching and his power that the only suggestions that were that regarding who he was was that he was some obviously some dead guy, a dead prophet that was risen from the dead. We don't know which one. It was John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the other prophets, but definitely he was one of the dead prophets who were risen from the dead. They wouldn't even simply say, well, he was a new prophet. Because there, associate, there was something about all the power that was, that was being demonstrated. They associated with the, the prophets of old who, who not only proclaimed like Moses, like Elijah, and like many of the other, some of the other prophets who not only proclaimed the message, but also did miracles in confirming uh, their message. Who is this Jesus? Was the commotion. What explains him? The answers in Herod's court all fell short. Nevertheless, Herod wanted to see this Jesus for himself, and he, and he would later on when Jesus was arrested. And I think that's something that we want to do, even as we, as we need to understand that as we go about preaching the gospel, it will, as, we're, as we are faithful to do so, it will cause people to start wondering who Jesus is. And there will be many different answers. People are going to start to say, well, he was a prophet, yes. He was a wise man. He was a, he was a great philosopher. He was a myth. But as people raise their questions, we want to be there to tell them that this Jesus is more than all those things. Jesus, he was not just a merely a great teacher, philosopher, prophet. He was the son of God that would speak truth into the confusion that will be raised as we fulfill God's mission in the world. Lastly, let me arrive at the conclusion. So lesson number six, and simply the 12 went back to report and rest. I won't read the last few verses for you. Later, weeks later, the apostles return to Capernaum. They, uh, they then... And Jesus takes them basically through, does three things with them. First of all, he has the apostles give a report, an account of all that they did. He had commissioned them. It was only fitting that they would report to him. They were excited, undoubtedly, about the response of the, to their teaching and healing, and they had much to say. And I love it because I love it that when we ourselves, and when we have our short-term missions came back at our church family meeting, they, came, they gave a report. And they, they shared with us uh, not only what they were doing, but the things that they saw that our missionaries were doing around the world. And that's encouraging to us because we say, wow, that's awesome what God is doing around the world. But I, I sometimes wonder, do we, we often don't hear about reports about what we're doing. What are we doing as a church, you know? Uh, do we have times for testimony? And maybe uh, some of our fellows should do that better than others. They have times of testimony, times of sharing of what God is doing in their lives. But particularly, when do we think about the, when was the last time we heard testimony? Just like this is what God is doing in our fellowship group, our our church about it with the works of the gospel. 
Well, I, I know, for instance, I wasn't here, but I heard a lot of good reports about our fall festival. And, and I want to just give thanks to God for uh, many of you who put that together. I heard it was a wonderful opportunity to many, uh, many people from outside our church came with their children, families, people that we didn't know before, whom we had a chance to minister the gospel to. And that's to the praise of God, these reports. Secondly, Jesus takes away the disciples to, to rest. He, he brought them to a, to a way to Bethsaida. That's, a, that's a, uh, the northeastern side of Galilee. He, he would with, Jesus would often do that, withdraw and rest to pray. Disciples, though, had been so busy with their mission, they didn't even have time to, to eat or to rest. Jesus now takes them on a retreat. And this is important for their ministry. And this is important for us in, in our ministry. To, even as we go about the work, and, it, and it is a, oftentimes it's a labor of love. It's, it's a wearisome at times. You, you feel overwhelmed. He says, there's so much to do. There's always work to do. There's always people to count. There's always people to teach. always people uh, uh, studies to prepare. Always ministries to coordinate and plan. But here's an important tip, that is we need to rest. We need to rest once in a while. Ministry can be draining. It is draining at times. But retreats to rest and recharge are needed, especially retreats that take us away to spend time with God alone. Third and last, though, we, we find out that that doesn't actually take place immediately, uh, even though they intended to go to Bethsaida. Luke tells us that the crowds followed Jesus and, and the disciples all the way to Bethsaida. And what supposed to be a retreat actually turned out to be like a church conference. But Jesus, and, and, but Jesus doesn't say, get away, get away. We've we got a retreat here. I've got to focus on the 12. What does he do? He, he welcomes all the crowds. And this is a lesson for us too, right? In the midst of busyness, don't neglect the needs that rise sometimes, right? They do come up. Those are opportunities. Jesus ministers to all of them. He, he, and then he'll feed them all too, by the way. We'll see that next, uh, next time. He ministers to them all. But then, uh, he, but, and in so doing, he lets the disciples simply return to watching him for a while. He now takes up the mission once again, teaching about the kingdom of God, healing those who were sick. Again, just showing to the disciples that this is my priority. This is why I'm here. Later on, by the way, they would get to rest, uh, as we'll see in, as the text continues in the, the rest of this chapter. But long after disciples were gone, long after the disciples' mission, Jesus is the one that's still doing the work of the mission. He's still doing, using others, and he's, he's doing the work here. And it's kind of encouraging us, to us. Like, think about it. The disciples, the apostles were used by him in the early church. And he, in every generation, God raises his, his disciples to fulfill his mission, to do his work, and then they pass away. And then, and, and then another generation rises up, and now all the way down to our generation. It's, it's now our turn to do this work. But this encouragement, the work will never die with us. Because even when we are gone and long gone from the scene, Jesus himself will continue to do, make his work done. He will continue raising up a generation. Yes, using us to raise up that generation, but he'll always raise up his workers for his work. There's something, and this is something that we are all part of, a work that will not end until Christ returns. It's a worthy, it's a worthy mission, brothers and sisters, to be a part of. I know we're busy. We have many things. I, I know as a, particularly as a parent, I get, I get easily just caught up in being a parent, forgetting the big picture of this mission. What are the things that you're doing? Not, don't let those things uh, cloud you from being a part of the big picture, this mission that, that God has given to us, this great commission. 
And let's be encouraged by some of the principles that we learned today. I'll leave you simply with a quote. This, this passage made me think of the quote from Hudson Taylor, the uh, missionary to China, founder of uh, China Inland Mission, now known as OMF. And uh, I remember Pastor Sin would often say this back in the days. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. We see that in the life of the apostles, and we can be encouraged that the work that we will do for the Lord Jesus Christ as his representatives will also never lack God's supply as long as we do it his way with his message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your time. Thank you for the word. And Lord, we pray that you would take these, this passage and encourage us to, to, <clears throat> to continue to be faithful in the mission which you give to us. Help us to improve in different areas of our mission and our part in the mission. Help us to remember that we're representatives. Help us to always acknowledge that we depend upon you in this work. Lord, cause us to know that to be realistic that there will be times of rejection just as there will be times of those who receive that we would not <clears throat> that we would never neglect lord this message that you that you've given to us the message of a coming king a coming king that calls for submission obedience fealty and love and that we would warn all who do would refuse him of the coming judgment, and they would offer hope for all who receive him and believe in him for the coming life that will, be, <clears throat> that will become, that will be ours in glory. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to cause this church to be a church that is known for disciple-making, telling others about Christ, the King, and him crucified, and helping others to become more like our king, following him, serving him, telling others about him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you, you're dismissed.